Well, what a joy to gather together on Father's Day and uh, celebrate the goodness of our God and also the influence of our dad. You know, there are few joys in life like the joy of being a father, but uh, being a father is uh, a role that comes with many challenges. Steve Martin once famously said, a father is someone who carries pictures where his money used to be. (laughs) Mark Ruffalo said, if you're not yelling at your kids, you aren't spending enough time with them. (laughs) The comedian Jim Gaffigan said, there should be a children's song that goes like this. If you're happy and you know it, Keep it to yourself and let your dad sleep. (laughs) And then Jerry Seinfeld once said, you can tell what was the best year of your father's life because they seem to freeze that clothing style and ride it out. (laughs) Now dads, if you're not laughing at what Jerry Seinfeld said, he was talking about you, okay? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a joy and a privilege to be a dad. And one of the things that I've, I've observed being a father is that, you know, it's, it's an incredible thing to welcome children into the world or to have a child through adoption. And, and, and when you have that joy of being a dad, of being a parent, you know, it's, there's like an instantaneous change in your heart and your life because, you know, you love your children in a way that is powerful and unique. It's probably the case that loving your children is the closest thing there is on earth to what Jesus taught us with respect to loving our neighbors as ourselves. It would be the easiest thing with regard to loving others, to love our own children as we love ourselves. When Jesus taught us that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, I think we might look to our own children, how we love them and how we sacrifice for them and how we show generosity toward them and how we show forgiveness and kindness toward them. Because, you know, there's an axiom I learned many years ago in life that, you know, it's easy to love those who are easy to love. And when it comes to your own children, those are typically the people in your life who are the easiest to love. They're the easiest to forgive. They're the easiest to show kindness and generosity toward. And so we think of what Jesus taught us in terms of the two greatest commandments, right? To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. When I think about loving our neighbors as ourselves, uh, we might think of our children. They're probably the, 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 the most likely to receive a love that reflects loving others like we love ourselves. And when we delve into that, we discover it's easy to love those who are easy to love. It's hard to love those who are hard to love. But yet Jesus challenges the common notion that we should only show kindness and generosity and concern toward those that we like or those that we love. You know, one of the things that stands out about his earthly ministry is how kind and gracious and generous he was to all peoples. This was not the norm in the first century. 
It was not common for Jewish men and women to show kindness and generosity and compassion and mercy to Gentiles or Samaritans. It was not common for Samaritans or Gentiles to show kindness to Jews. No, the Jewish people of the first century were living under Roman rule and there was an ongoing tension in their culture and society. There were tensions that ran deep. There were tensions that ran through history. I mean, you have Jewish men and women being taught literally the entire course of their lives to hate certain people groups. You, you, you have uh, this, this dynamic with the Romans and their taxation and their force that, that was often employed against the Jewish people and that tension, that hatred. And then Jesus breaks onto the scene and, and you see Jesus tearing down these kinds of cultural and racial divisions. You even see Jesus tearing down the kind of divisions that existed between men and women. Jesus speaking to women and showing value and love and concern to women. You see Jesus showing love and concern and value to people who were regarded as outsiders or sinners or outcasts. And one of the most remarkable things about the life and ministry of Jesus is how truly he embodies the, 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 the incredible commandment that he communicated to love others with the same force, the same veracity, the same sacrifice, the same kindness, the same compassion, with which you love yourself. It's really an amazing thing. And we're in a teaching series called, the, called Parables and we're walking through some parables of Jesus. What we're seeing is that these parables that Jesus tells, these stories that he tells are, are, are not just like cute little, gracious, sweet stories. They, they are spiritual warfare. I mean, Jesus is using parables to drive home deep spiritual truth. Jesus is using these parables to expose hypocrisy, selfishness, pride, self-righteousness. And I have another example for you today of a parable that, that I think aligns with how we think of loving others as we would love ourselves because, because Jesus is gonna talk about a well-known story to many in the room today and many of you who are connecting with us online today, but a parable that's greatly misunderstood because many have only seen it for, it's kind of sweet, sentimental, encouraging value of, oh yeah, help somebody out from time to time. And I wanna show you how this story is actually a spiritual attack on self-righteousness, on pride, on hypocrisy, and on the difficulties that every single one of us have of loving those who are difficult to love. We know it as a parable of the Good Samaritan. We find it in the Gospel of Luke in the 10th chapter. So if you would just take your copy of God's Word and go with me to the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter. Luke's the third book of the New Testament. So if you find your way to the New Testament, just go to the third book on the right and, and you will find the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 10 today as, as Jesus tells really one of the best known parables that he told, but I believe one of the most greatly misunderstood because here's the situation. Jesus is, of course, in, in, in the midst of his earthly ministry, and he is, he's challenged by a man who came to Jesus not with a heart to learn and grow. He came to Jesus to test him. 
And Jesus often encountered people who were approaching him to try to trip him up, to cause him to stumble, to really kind of test his knowledge, his wisdom. And there was a man who came to Jesus one day just like that. He came to test Jesus, to challenge him, and to see if Jesus could really back up all that he was saying. And so he comes to Jesus and this particular man, you have to understand some uh, interpretations, uh, translations talk about it. He's a lawyer. He's, he, he's an expert in the Old Testament. He's a lawyer in the sense of a spiritual and a community leader. He's an expert in the law of the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, the Israelite law. This guy knows the Old Testament backward and forward, would have had large sections of the Old Testament memorized. This guy was an absolute expert. When we go back and we look at what you and I know as the Old Testament. And so he comes to Jesus one day, and I want you to see beginning in verse 25, he, he comes to Jesus just to test him, to see how the ministry of Jesus will align with what the Jewish people accepted as the norm for faith and ministry. So check out what happens. This guy says, verse 25, he, he comes to Jesus. He says, um, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, of course, is uh, the son of God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He is infinitely wise and he knows all things. And so he knows this guy's heart. He knows this guy's motive. And Jesus is going to turn the table on the lawyer here. And so Jesus doesn't just answer, of course. Jesus often, as he does, responds to the question with a question. And Jesus says, well, what does the law of Moses say and how do you read it? In other words, you're an expert in these things. You're asking me how to have eternal life you're an expert in the law. You know how to have eternal life. So how do you understand the law? Check us out, verse 27. The man says, well, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. And then he gives a profound statement to him. Do this and you'll live forever. Hey man, you know what the law says? You know what you have to do to inherit eternal life? You have to love God perfectly and completely. All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never harbor a sinful thought. Never delve into lust or anger or evil. You, you have to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Generous, kind, forgiving, gracious, grading on the curve. You know, how you love yourself. Hey, do these two things and you'll live, no problem. You know exactly what you have to do. <laughs> you see, there are two ways to heaven. There are two paths to heaven. One path is you do what Jesus just said here. You love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly and completely, and you love other people perfectly and completely with the same veracity, the same urgency, the same sacrifice, the same compassion with which you love yourself. And of course, all of us understand that we cannot meet that standard. There's not a single one of us who can get to heaven and have eternal life through that first path. And that's why you'll hear us say there's only one way to heaven and it's the second way. And that is as men and women who fall abundantly short of this standard, we have to lean into the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. Now, this lawyer 
is operating on the trajectory that he can fulfill the first of these requirements. He can love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he can love his neighbor as himself. See, here's the thing about saying you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one can disprove you. You say, oh, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, prove it to me. Well, yeah, then you run through, yeah, hey, I'm at church today. I'm, hey, I'm X, Y, Z. No, it's, it's difficult to prove. But when you say I am also perfectly and completely loving my neighbors as I love myself, that's going to bring with it the need for some tangible evidence. And so check this out. The man feels the burden of Jesus' statement. Well, do this and you will live. He knows no one can really challenge him on his love for God. I mean, that's a hard thing to measure. But he, he also knows that, that he will need to give evidence that he's loved his neighbors as himself. And so check this out. So wanting to justify himself, he says this to Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? He's wanting to justify himself. He's not asking who is my neighbor. He's saying, well, Jesus, give me an example of who my neighbor is and I will provide the evidence that I am honoring this commandment wholly and completely. And what he's expecting Jesus to say, because this is the first century Jewish notion of neighbor, I'm expecting you to say, look at your children, look at your family, look at your friends, look at your fellow Jew, at which point the man's gonna say, oh yeah, let me tell you how I love my children and look at what I've done for them. And let me tell you how I love my spouse. Look at what I've done for her. Well, let me tell you how I love my fellow Jewish friends and neighbors. I had a, I had a friend next door to me, went through a difficult time and look at what I did for him or her. And he's, he's expecting Jesus to say, well, no, your neighbor is your fellow Jew, your fellow countryman. In other words, your neighbor is those in your life who are easy to love. He might say to some of you, oh, your neighbor is the fellow University of Florida football fan. <laughs> now your neighbor is your fellow Tampa Bay Lightning fan. We better not have any Islander fans in the house. Jesus isn't talking about Islander fans. <laughs> talking about Tampa Bay Lightning fans, right? He's expecting Jesus to say, um, the person who believes like you believe, the person who thinks like you think, the person who values what you value, the person who looks like what you look like. Jesus here knows that the lawyer is only trying to justify himself. Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And he's expecting Jesus to say, your neighbor is your fellow Jew, your fellow countryman, your fellow expert in the law, at which point this man could say, yes, let me show you how I've done Done that and he's gonna he's gonna try to justify himself. But of course Jesus is on to this man's self-righteousness. And so Jesus doesn't answer the question of who is my neighbor directly. Jesus instead tells him a parable or a story. And here's the story Jesus tells. Let me just tell, I wanna warn you, this, this is not a, just a cute, quaint little story. This is an assault on this man's self-righteousness. Are you with me? Jesus would go on the attack here. So if you've ever heard this story as some kind of like sweet, nice story about how to be nice to people around you, I'm just telling you, that's not the purpose of this. Jesus is on full on attack mode here against the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness that by the way, extends far beyond just this particular lawyer. And it actually extends to every single one of us. 
So here's what Jesus says. There was a Jewish man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says he was going down. Again, notice here how Jesus in these parables uses current cultural norms. The road to Jericho was a road that was north, but it was a road that was down because of the terrain. And so you traveled down to Jericho. Notice Jesus is using real life, real world situations here in the terms of this story. He's done that every single time. And then Jesus says this, this man was uh, attacked by bandits. Notice he says, they stripped off his clothes, they beat him up and they left him half dead beside the road. Again, Jesus is using a norm here. There were many people traveling on the road to Jericho who were robbed, who were beaten or even killed. This was a very, very common occurrence. So nothing Jesus has said here would have caught this religious lawyer off guard. Okay, and so look at now, 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 here's where things get interesting. And so by chance, he says, a priest came along. Now notice the pattern. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and he passed him by. And then secondly, notice this. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, remember, I told you last week that the parables of Jesus often, not always, but often have a couple of key indicators into how we get their meaning. One indicator is a breaking of a pattern. The other key for us is to see what happens at the end. Let me just remind you of the significance of how we interpret these parables, because notice here the breaking of a pattern. We have a priest who sees the man lying there who was beaten, and he crosses over on their side. We see a temple assistant who sees the man lying there who had been beaten. He passes by on the other side. We expect to get a third person, because if you're a you know, if you're a pastor, you always have to have three points. That's a rule, okay? God can't work without three points. So notice here, Jesus has three points in his little parable, right? And we're expecting what? The third person is going to see and is going to pass by on the other side, right? But that's not what happened. So check this out. And then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion. A breaking of the pattern. Now you have to understand for this Jewish lawyer, the priest was the hero. The priest was the highest member of the religious community. The priest would have had not just spiritual influence, but community influence. The priest was a member of the varsity team. The temple assistant was on the JV team. Not quite to varsity yet, but working hard to get there. You have two respected individuals in the Jewish community, two people who would have, by the way, been viewed as people who fulfill the two greatest commandments to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And these two see the man lying there beaten. He's barely alive in desperate need, clinging to life. He, by the way, by insinuation, is a fellow Jewish countryman, but these two men don't have compassion to stop and help. But the Samaritan, the despised one does. Now you have to understand that the Samaritans were so hated by the Jewish people because they were viewed as, uh, as, a, as a half 
breed, a half race. They were, they were seen as, 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 a, as a race of people that came about through sinful circumstances. You see, the Samaritans have a, have a history that traced back to the Assyrian invasion of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And through the Assyrian invasion of the Northern Kingdom, you have a cohabitation that happens over time between these Assyrian Gentiles and Jewish women. And, and thus you have kind of this half breed of, of people that the true Jewish men and women would not recognize as legitimate. They hated each other. The Mishnah, which is, which is a commentary on the Old Testament from Jewish rabbis said this. Listen to what the Jewish rabbis said about Samaritans. Listen, this is a direct quote from the Mishnah, which I'm sure many of you have read. All right, here's, here, here's a direct quote, all right. He that eats the bread of a Samaritan is like to one who eats the flesh of a pig. In other words, if you go over to the home of a Samaritan and have dinner and like show any kindness and friendship toward a Samaritan, it's like associating with a pig, which was deemed an unclean animal to the Jewish people. I mean, this is, this is what the priest communicated about the Samaritans. Jewish boys and girls were taught from their earliest years to despise the Samaritans on religious grounds. These are a people that come through the Assyrian invasion of our nation, you are not to associate with the Samaritans. The Jews so hated the Samaritans that when they traveled, they would bypass the region in which the Samaritans lived. And so Jesus tells this parable about a Jewish man who is injured, he's beaten, which would have been, again, understood as a danger on the road to Jericho, but a priest sees him, walks by on the other side, a temple assistant sees him, walks by on the other side, and a Samaritan stops. Now here's the key, why does he stop? He stops because he has compassion. The word for compassion is a word that literally means from inside your bowels. It's something you feel deeply. It's something that moves you. It's something that compels you. It's, 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 it's being heartbroken. It's, it's being moved to action. It's, man, this Samaritan comes by and he sees, yeah, it's a Jewish man, but it doesn't matter. It's a man who's in desperate need and he stops. Now, ladies, being Father's Day and all, I, I, I think we can all show our appreciation for a man who is traveling to a destination and actually stops. <laughs> I don't know how you do it in your family. I can tell you how I do it in my family. Every family vacation is the Indy 500, baby. I've been told it's seven hours to Atlanta from here. Not for me. It's about six hours and 15 minutes. I know what it's like to travel with young children. Dads, if you're like me, I have a tip for you. Kids gotta stop and use the bathroom. You use empty water bottles. You roll the window down. You do whatever you have to do. 
right? This is how dads think. Every family vacation is the Indy 500 and we're looking to set land speed records. We're looking to text our friends and say, I made it in such and such a time, okay? This is how real men do it. Real men don't stop. We don't ask for directions, okay? We, 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 we are all about getting to the destination in record time. I want you to see here the breaking of the pattern, the Samaritan stops. The two Jewish heroes pass by. The Samaritan stops. Why does he stop? He has compassion. And in his compassion, look at what happens next. He soothes the man's wounds with olive oil and wine and he bandages them. He then put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of him. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And, and then Jesus says this, now this is profound. Check this out. Jesus then turns back to the, the expert in the, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament law. He says, now, which of these three men would you say was a neighbor or literally there who proved to be a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits. And the religious lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yep. Now, if you wanna demonstrate that you have eternal life, you go and you do the same. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that your neighbor is anyone in need of compassion. Your neighbor, my neighbor, is anyone in need of compassion. You say a fellow countryman, yes. You say even an enemy, yes. You say someone not like me, yes. Someone who believes differently than I do, Yes, your neighbor is anyone in need of mercy. And as you have the means and the opportunity to address whatever it is that is ailing the person that you're encountering, then to love your neighbor as yourself dictates that you will help. Now, this is, this is profound. The man trying to justify himself saying, yeah, you know what? Um, let, 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 tell me who my neighbor is, Jesus, and then I'll, 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 I'll prove to you here. I'll give you some examples of how I've, I've, I've loved others. And, and Jesus is not playing the game. Notice the original question to Jesus was, who is my neighbor? The question Jesus asked in the telling of the parable is not now who is your neighbor? The, the question is who proved to be a neighbor? I was told growing up that the proof is in the pudding. Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor? And it's clearly the one who showed mercy and compassion. I mean, can you imagine how it would have pained this Jewish man to say this about a Samaritan? Can you imagine just the absolute ridicule that Jesus would have received from the religious establishment who, who, who would have discussed this parable? Man, yet Jesus claims to be the son of God, but here he is praising a Samaritan. Jesus says, the one who proved to be a neighbor is the one who showed mercy. It doesn't matter his background doesn't matter his circumstances, doesn't matter his heritage. No, what matters is he proved to be a neighbor. You say, now, is this something that the lawyer should have known already? Yes, 
This is all through the Old Testament, by the way. In other words, this is not a New Testament idea that God is gracious and kind to people in need. Can I share with you Proverbs 3.27? Look, when it is in your power, the Proverbs say, don't withhold, okay, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to help them. If you can help your neighbor now, don't say, come back tomorrow and I'll help you. The lawyer should have known better. The Pharisees should have known better. These, these uh, Israelite leaders should have known better. The problem is what filled their head never filtered down to their hearts. They were religious, but they were not righteous. They only loved people who were easy to love. And so let me say it again, this parable of the Good Samaritan is not a feel-good story about helping out someone in need. It is an assault on all of our religious arrogance and self-righteousness that lead us to only be inclined to help those that we feel inclined to help. To only show grace and compassion to those that we feel somehow merit grace and compassion. No, I want you to see here No, Jesus is communicating that if you truly know the love and the grace and the compassion of God, it's a love and a grace and a compassion that will be evident in your life to all peoples at all times and in all situations as you have the means and the opportunity to help. And so let me give you a few takeaways here. And um, because I'm seminary trained, I have three. Are you ready? Quickly, check it out. Number one, let me give you a couple takeaways here. I just want you to see the profound nature of this well-known story. First of all, our only hope for salvation is God's grace, not our goodness. Jesus is attacking this lawyer's self-righteousness. He's reminding him, you can't get to heaven on your own. I, I just want you to know, if you've been tracking with us through this series, you've seen Jesus talk about a real heaven and a real hell. I want every single one of us to recognize that we are all destined for eternity. The scripture says God has has put eternity in our hearts. I just want you to understand, if you're connecting with us today in any fashion, I want you to understand there is a real heaven and a real hell. Every single one of you are headed toward an eternal destination, either a place that is reserved for God's children, place of eternal life where we will forever be in God's care. We will have his love, his presence, and and that, that is a place of eternal joy. Or there's a place of eternal judgment, a place, as Jesus says, from in many occasions where there's much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I'm telling you, the only way you can cross over the, the spiritual boundary from death to life is not through your own righteousness. If you came in to, to worship today thinking that, you know what, you can get to God on your own, you can do enough good, you can go to church enough times, you can, you can do enough uh, acts of kindness to random people. If you can do enough, Jesus is trying to show you through this story, you cannot. You can't get to God on your own. The only hope for you and me is to lean into the grace and the forgiveness of God. And if you're here today and you carried some sin, some hurt, some shame, some guilt into the room with you, I have good news. We serve a God who is big enough to take all of that on and to grant you his forgiveness and his compassion. You need to only ask. May I remind you what Ephesians 2 says? God saved you by his what? 
grace when you believe. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from him. Salvation, I love this, is not a reward for the good things that we have done so none of us can boast. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is through grace. And and listen, Jesus is communicating that none of us can get to God on our own. We cannot do enough. The the, the famed scholar C.S. Lewis was once asked to explain the difference between Christianity and all other religious systems and belief. And he said it comes down to one word, grace. We are a people of grace. We only get to God through grace. And ultimately what Jesus is doing through this parable is illustrating that he is the good Samaritan. Because what did Jesus prove during his earthly ministry? I'll tell you what he proved. He proved that he has compassion even on his enemies. You say Jesus had enemies? Yes, every single one of us worshiping at Bell Shoals today. You say, I've... I've never, I've never seen myself as an enemy of God. Well, friend, you're not seeing yourself correctly. At one time in your life and mine, we were all enemies of God. We were all by nature children of wrath. We were all choosing to go our own way. We are only who we are if we are Christ followers today through the grace of God. And Jesus came and he took on the Roman cross and the wrath of God in our place for our sin. Why? Because Jesus, like the good Samaritan, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He had compassion for even his enemies. Secondly, Jesus brings healing at his own expense. Jesus did more than flip a couple pieces of silver to an innkeeper. You know what Jesus did? He shed his own blood for you, your sin, your guilt, your shame. Third, Jesus proved to be a neighbor to those in need. He proved it. And so listen, if you're here with us today, you're worshiping online with us today, and you feel buried under the weight of guilt or shame, you're carrying a sin debt, that you've never dealt with, you think that somehow you're gonna plow your way through it just through your own goodness, I have a better way for you today. Come to God through the grace of Jesus, ask for his forgiveness, commit to follow him all the days of your life and he will save you and give you eternal life. You don't get to God through your own goodness, you get to him through grace. Jesus is the good Samaritan. If you're connecting with us today and you'd like more information on how to be a follower of Jesus or if there's a way that we can be an encouragement to you, I wanna encourage you to text Bell Shoals to 77411. Listen, don't leave here today. I'll be out in the lobby. I'd love to see you before you leave. We have members of our connection team. Love to see you before you leave today. Please don't leave here without knowing for sure that heaven is your eternal destination, that your sin, that your guilt is covered. Jesus loves you. He is the good Samaritan, all right? Our only hope for salvation is God's grace and our goodness. Now, secondly, let me give us a, a word for those who know Jesus. Secondly, we extend mercy through what we say and what we do. We're a people who extend mercy. Listen, let me go quickly here. One of the ways we demonstrate what I call gospel neighboring in our culture is to extend grace, not just in what we do, but can I give you just an application for our season of life? I think we can extend grace even through what we say. I don't know if you've noticed, but social media is a cesspool of negativity, hatred, and vitriol where keyboard warriors can say whatever they want to from the security of their parents' basement without any accountability. We live in a day and a time where the social media mob is being taken way too seriously. (laughs) But it's having an impact that has extended to many of our conversations and interactions. 
This impulsive negativity, especially over the past year, has made its way into our forms of communication and discussion. Listen to me, Bell Shoals. We can and must do better when it comes to how we interact with each other and how we interact with others, even those with whom we do not agree. We have a tremendous opportunity in this season of life and ministry to show that not everyone is filled with rage and hatred and selfishness and pride and arrogance. No, we are a people first and foremost of grace and mercy and compassion, and that must seep its way even into our conversations and interactions. We can and we must do better. Yes. Man, what? Think about what an impact we have the opportunity to make as a people that don't give in to the mob, as a people that show a better way. Let me show you Ephesians 4, 29. I love this. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. That's a powerful word. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Now, does that mean that we, we fail to speak the truth? No, we speak the truth, but it does mean we speak it with love. So not just what we do, but what we say, we have the means to extend mercy and compassion. And then finally, check this out. Listen to me. If you're a Christ follower today, I want you to understand what's Jesus, what's he saying to us? Our mission, listen to me, is to do less talking, therefore, and more proving. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to this religious self-righteous lawyer, quit doing talking, quit trying to justify yourself and start doing more proving. (laughs) What a great word. What a great word. Hey, can I give you a newsflash? God doesn't need me and he doesn't need you. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say he'll build it with you or me. He doesn't need us, but he includes us. And I'm grateful for that. And so here's the thing, Jesus is gonna build his church and here's how he builds his church. He builds his church through the demonstration of gospel kindness and compassion in the world today. He demonstrates his power to build his church through his people and their reflection of his compassion and his kindness. And so you know what that means? And this is what I love about Bell Shoals. It means that we are a people and we will continue to be a people and we have been a people who are continually embracing the mission of Jesus to get his kindness and compassion to the nations. It means we're a people who are gonna communicate through our kindness, compassion, through our benevolence ministries, through our care ministries, our counseling ministries, our evangelism ministries, through our church planning ministries, through our international missionaries, through our local partners. It means we're a people who are going to be about reflecting the compassion of Jesus to the world. That's what we are all about. That's what we're all about. That's why we support incredible missionaries all around the world. That's why we support church planning all across the country. That's why we embrace our local community and we're constantly doing things that that show kindness and compassion that creates inroads and opportunities for gospel conversations. It doesn't matter to us what the person's past is, background is, need is. Jesus doesn't call us to to, to pick and choose and just to be be selfish in, in, in our administration of his grace and his mercy. Jesus proved here through the parable that whoever has need that we have the means and the opportunity to address, we run and we address it. We don't discriminate. No, we 
We do everything we can to communicate the love, the grace, the compassion, the kindness of Jesus, that, that love that we've received. Can I say it this way? People who know mercy, show mercy. <laughs> That's what Jesus is getting out of here. Hey man, you wanna, you wanna know how, you, if you have eternal life, look, look at yourself. Do you know the mercy of God? Are you showing the mercy of God? If the answer is yes, then heaven is your home. And so let's continue to be a people of kindness, a people of grace, a people of compassion. Listen, the world desperately needs this today and I believe we're gonna desperately need it in the days to come. We'll continue to stand on the authority of God's word. We'll continue to stand on what's right and wrong. We'll continue to stand on what's best. But we'll do it in a way that's aimed not just to win an argument, but to win a soul. We'll do it in a way that's not just interested in the head, but the heart. We'll do it in a way that reflects the compassion and the kindness of Jesus, even to those who disagree. Because we believe with all of our hearts that as the Good Samaritan, Jesus has modeled for us what it looks like to truly love others as we love ourselves. Let me give you just one more example here and then, um, and then I'll pray for us. Matthew 25, this is such a convicting word. Jesus here, he just illustrates for us what this looks like. Matthew 25, he's talking about the kingdom. Actually, we just looked at a parable out of Matthew 25 recently, but notice how Jesus talks about the end times here, okay? He says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me a drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I, I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? We don't remember that. Or thirsty and give you something to drink. Or when did we ever see you as a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And, and the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. You know, every act of service that you render, every person that you invite, every dollar you give, every prayer that you pray, God uses them for the upbuilding of his kingdom as we continue to unite as a people who are about loving others as we love ourselves. We rally together, we minister together, we pray together to honor Jesus and his grace and compassion in hopes that he would multiply that out to a world that desperately needs it. And so Bell Shoals, let's continue to be that people, not self-righteous, not arrogant, not selfish, compassionate, moved by the need around us, even existing in those with whom we disagree.